Okay, so this is a chat I had with Faris last week. Um, we went all over the place with this one from uh, drum and bass, jungle and country and mental health in, uh, in the advertising business um, to some wisdom from Hinduism. I mean, it really goes everywhere. It was fascinating uh, chat very very smart chap um so yeah let, let's you know let's just go into it Hello, Faris. How are you? I am really well, mate. How are you? Not too bad at all. Not too bad at all. So before we hit record, I was looking at the sun streaming in your window in Georgia. The sun mm -hmm, mm -hmm. streaming in my window in uh, Stalag, Victoria, uh, in Australia. <laughs> yeah, the, 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 this, uh, the, the sun is sort of streaming. We, we are, yes, last night we hit the uh, Hurricane Sally came over us last night, but it's downgraded mm. significantly at, at this point so it just was flood rains for a few hours um, okay but up until now we have been very lucky because we're in georgia mm. and uh <laughs> the rest of america is covered in smoke and the panhandle has the big storms and for a couple of days we were the only part of the right. continental united states that wasn't really um environmentally screwed up so yeah how, how bad is it so i mean how, uh, Obviously, all the, the fires are principally in California. Is yes. That, is that, my geography is terrible. How far away is that? Really, really far. It's New York to LA is further than New York to London. Where are, we are in the southeast, it's sort of across the country. But because the smoke is so substantial, yeah. it's already gone up to Seattle. So it went, obviously went orange in California and was apocalyptic yeah. and, and, and Blade Runner-esque. By, by Seattle, it's still completely white out. You can't see more than a block in front of you. We have family up there. Wow. And it hit, Boston, it hit Boston, which is all the other way on the side of the country above New York. Goodness um, me. So, so the, sm the smoke is everywhere. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's... Yeah. That's, yeah. that's something, isn't it? That's, that's good. I sometimes, you know, here we get surprised occasionally where you get like the sky goes black and it's like, oh, something's on fire, but it's in Tasmania, you know? It, it, mm. Poor, yeah. poor Tassie. Yeah, but it flies across the sea. You know? <clears throat> I had friends friends living in Singapore for a couple of years, and and every summer, they would when when I think in Indonesia or Malaysia they start burning some trees for some reason, they would have to leave because the air quality got so bad that they just didn't want their kids to be there during that time. Yeah, so they would yeah. leave. No, I think uh, in um, I remember doing doing some work a few years ago for the. Um, uh, it's back to Tasmania, the, the tourism, uh, whatever it is, Tasmanian tourism, you know, but um, they, um, you know, they, they used to get huge amounts of tourism from, uh, you know, from like big urban centres in China, you know, just for oh, this right. 
for the fresh air and all that kind of stuff. You know, that was the sort of oh, big, of course, big appeal. You know, because because we worked yeah. out because we did some research and we thought, oh, it's going to be about wine and food and all these typical tourist things. It was like, no, all they want to know is uh, there's plenty of space and there's lots of fresh air. That, that I it. can I can I can understand it. I um I went to Beijing for one day to do some workshops and uh, I got off the plane and said, why does it? What's that smell? It's like burning plastic and then yeah that's just a smell and I was like that doesn't seem good mm. that's not that's not ideal um if you because Hobart Tourism Board is kind of a dream client I don't know if you remember um do you remember I don't know when I was a kid in London at least we had Capital Radio which was yeah. the, you know region, regional radio and Chris Tarrant who ended up being the TV famous guy was the breakfast right. show that's and right. he would he, he would play the Hobart Tasmania jingle a lot Hobart, right. Tasmania, it's a wonderful town. There's more of it. It goes on and on. Yeah. And I still I still remember it well and quite fondly, I would say. Right. <laughs> I, I would definitely play that to the client immediately and say, yeah. this is what we should go with. Let's <laughs> bring this back. I've solved yeah. the problem. It's, it, we're done. Let's just do this. Yeah. I, I remember, you know, because I worked down there uh, for a little while. I, I was talking to my mum back home, you know, and she was saying, what are you mm -hmm. up to? I said, oh, I've been going up and down to Tasmania doing some work down there. She said, oh, you need to be careful. Well, I was like, what? What's, <laughs> you know, what is a, a, you know, most exciting thing that happens down there is a cat stuck up a tree. You know? And she said, mm -hmm. no, no, I've seen it on the news. There's a civil war and everything. And I was like, she, uh, she, she thought it was Tanzania, you see. Ah. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean it happens. Yeah. Um, I was think I was I was thinking more Tasmanian Devil, and it's like no, yeah. really, that's mostly a mostly a cartoon character now. I think yeah. I don't think the original the animals yeah. are really left much. Yeah, well, there's not that many left. They, they've had to the you know the sort of population that's left. They've had to uh, isolate on a on an island, you know, because there's this weird sort of facial cancer thing that um, that's oh, gosh. wiping them out. So any healthy ones have all been sort of isolated. Um, it's funny isn't it funny how like i don't know if you've noticed this it, it's just sort of the beta meinhof effect or you know Ooh. frequency illusion but since th this thing that the lockdown related experience we're going through has happened yeah. i've been watching old tv shows random movies just random stuff you know yeah. and somehow there's always a weird pandemic episode of like yeah. old sitcoms and all and like i was like i was like is this it's weird it's so weird yeah. anyway i mean i you know on the, on the one hand you know there is that things like oh, am i just you know noticing that because of this or, or yeah or you know enough time has sort of elapsed now where i think you know this kind of stuff went on all the time you know there's always mm -hmm. something going around you know and it's but why yeah. why this time has it particularly um you know because obviously you can get into controversy you know when you start <laughs> very quickly <laughs> But um, you know, we, when we, you look when you look at some of the statistics, you know, I mean, there are worse, there are worse things, you know, like uh, yeah. you know, tuberculosis. You know, every year is still killing more people than. Uh, Quite bad, yeah, but it's also bacterial, so you can treat it with antibiotics. Yeah. I think, anyway. Um, yeah. But like, yeah, I don't know. It's tricky, isn't it? I, I'm not. My brother's an epidemiologist. We could get him on next time. Okay. He's he's just published a new paper about this. Actually, he's just done some COVID work. He's at the London School of Tropical Medicine. He's one oh, of okay. the the modelers that are much maligned uh, okay. of of late by the expert hating classes. Oh. Um, although his he's quite recent to the game. He he didn't right. want to do it for a long time because it was too yeah. politically charged. But um, well, what's his uh, what's his sort of point of view? 
Uh, his big thing was he thinks a lot of the models previously, or at least three quarters of them, are based on a certain set of uh, standardized statistical tools that are not relevant. Because the way I understand it is that when you do epidemiological modeling, one of the things you tend to, to, to assume is that population density is a hugely determinant factor. Yeah. But that populations very rarely change dramatically over the course of a pandemic, right? Uh -huh. Because cities don't change their density or population significantly. Even if like a large percentage die, it doesn't change enough yeah. to affect the maths. Right. But if you do a lockdown, if you do a lockdown and half the population is suddenly away and half the population is suddenly out, and then you change that situation so they come back together, the population density density changes dramatically which will make the maths wrong right okay yeah. it just means his from his point of view that it'll take longer for the second wave to kick in but that's sort of proven to be true anyway yeah. anywho yeah. this is, isn't really my area of, of no. expertise though so, <laughs> um... yeah. Yeah. I, you know i guess you know you're closer to some expertise than many <laughs> uh, pundits you know <laughs> I, yeah, I do. I mean, I I, <clears throat> I try and read some of the papers, but yeah. Yeah, as you know, scientific papers aren't written to be comprehensible to, to us. That's not well, how it works. Exactly. But. Yeah. Hey, just just watch the TV news instead. You know, you, that's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm yeah. Sure, that's all completely uh, spot on. Anyway, we di we digress. But I guess well, it, it's hard. It's hard not to. This is. I mean, yeah. you know, it, you can avoid the topic or you can uh, try and deal with it deftly, but you, I mean, either way it's there. So. Yeah, yeah. But, I, you know, over, because it's been long enough now that I've swung back and forward a few times in different points mm -hmm. of view, you know, so, but... Um, well, it seems, it seems uh, robust to be changing your mind. It seems very sensible. Yeah, yeah. To, to, <laughs> yeah. As new information comes in, because, you know, <clears throat> the unknown quantities are still so extreme, like, um, the, the the long haul aspects and the possible persistent myocardial inflammation which may lead yeah. to you know um, heart problems in the future yeah. uh, lung scarring which i definitely got because you know that's the x-rays mm. um yeah, it's it's uh it's we don't know and it and it's it's you know somebody got someone tweeted they got glaucoma now post covid because it affects blood right. pressure so much okay. all, all very interesting i think that's part of why it's scary because things that are extremely unknown quantities are unknown and that's scary yeah, and plus you know I mean, the other thing you know from a sort of you know evolutionary standpoint any decent virus you know is going to be mutating you know what i mean mm, uh, yeah exactly uh, in, in it's, it's, it's a very good point here environmental it's, pressure you know, so it's a very good point isn't it because mm. Let's think about, there are about, I think, 20 or 12 or 25 viruses that affect humans that we know of. Mm. And we have vaccines for about four or five of them, but mm. um, they all require vaccination every year for different strains with the exception of smallpox, I think. So um, that's just something to be aware of, I suppose. Flu vaccines are the vaccine that we're talking about here, yeah. probably. Yeah. <laughs> and that, that you have to do them all the time. Yeah, well, I think I think the way flu vaccines work is because the the, on, the only thing they can go on for the next vaccine is the previous mm -hmm. virus. So they're, you know, so even when they bring out a new vaccine, they're hedging their bets that the new strain they are. is going to be similar enough to the last one that it'll probably. <coughs> it it'll probably tends work. to be, 
it tends to be like every time they change it or whatever, it's yes, yes, and they look at what's percolating out in Asia mm. because the direction of the spread of flu is from Asia over this way. Right. And so you go there as soon as the season starts and then you work out what the most virulent and you know dominant strains are and then you use those as the sort of guide, I think, is part yeah. of it. Yeah. So you get a bit of time. Well, we used to get yeah. a bit of time until yeah. we had all these planes and, and stuff and now yeah. less time. Well, of course, yeah. Anyway, I guess, um, so we're speculating on things that we kind of know. <laughs> Uh, that's that's what we do isn't it yeah, very, very little about talk about things we do know we do know about so um i thought it'd be interesting just just to start with because um mm -hmm. you know you always uh, uh well yourself and, and rosie because of your sort of business model of the nomadic sort of um you know mm -hmm. agency on on the move kind of thing that how um you know, obviously your business model has been savvy right. by this. Yeah. So how, how have you adapted? <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, I will agree that it was savage. Uh, our, our primary business line is traveling internationally to very large events where a yeah. lot of people come together from other places and speaking yeah. at them loudly. Yeah. So yeah. that business, that so we had our best year ever on the books. Uh, we had gigs with lots of marquee tech brands that the sort of Big Four plus Snapchat and maybe Casper and a few other things. It was all yeah. looking very promising and some good international gigs. We had a nice one in Australia lined up. Anyway, in about a week and a half, all that vanished. Um, and that was, uh, yeah, we, <laughs> there were, there were, it was, um, it was dramatic. It was like our yeah. cash flow essentially dropped to zero for yeah. about seven months of this year because we had obviously planned around the, the gigs. And so that's what yeah. we were focused on. Um, so uh, the initial reactions were okay. I'm not sure, uh, like everybody else. Then I got sick and that was a bit of a spiraling time. And that wasn't, anyway, I wasn't particularly in, in a, an adaptive mood, let's say. Right. Um, I, I wasn't able, in my opinion, to, to pivot. Um, but we eventually kind of, you know, realize that we needed to try to do some other stuff. Um, and we have other business lines. So we, we, so we do consulting projects for yeah. both brands and agencies. They're usually a sort of combination of, uh, you know, consulting, going to talk to people, finding out what the problems yeah. are, and then, you know, helping that, them think about them. Yeah, I was gonna ask and, then, and, and, then, and then doing some training and workshops around, yeah. you know, different mechanisms of agencies or briefing, let's say, which is a good way to just talk about how agencies work. Does the um, consulting so stuff, does that rely on, you know, so for instance, it's like, ah, uh, you know, okay, so next week we're going to be in Stockholm and then you mm -hmm. know, consulting engagements around the speaking. No, yeah. So basically everything we built around the speaking because we like travel and so that's yeah. what we want to do. The consulting, we would normally take in one or two clients a year and try and do it very quickly. So we'll go to their office and live with them for a month or whatever. Yeah. and then tell them tell them what we think and then do some workshops and training if that seems relevant with their teams um but uh last year we took on a client that we'd done a couple of those things for as a retained client mm -hmm. so that that was for the whole year so they had a certain amount of time spread out across the year but we batched it up into small blocks when we were going to be in the uk yes because it was a uk-based client yeah. 
Um, and now we're doing it remotely and it's, we're trying to learn how that, um, how to, cause like we can do it in a very intense, you know, we do a very intense two or three days with different parts of an agency, let's say, and hash out some stuff whilst we spent a lot of time talking to them and playing it back. And, yeah. but this does that, you can't do that on zoom. It's too, it's just awful. It's just not fun to do days and days on zoom at all. Even more than an hour is tough, I would say. Yeah. So that's breaking it up into much smaller chunks for doing more chunking. But so what we did when we, uh, I pulled myself a bit together, a bit more together. Um, one thing we did, which was uh, not something we normally do as an agency like object, was uh, make make an ad type thing. We made sort of an ad that was interesting. <laughs> um, it, it, it was uh, with Dolly Parton, which we weren't expecting. That was cool. <laughs> I, d I must have, I must have missed that. Uh, yeah, so it's a, it's a one and a half minute uh, sort of black and white film about the music industry in Nashville. Dolly Parton reads the voiceover. We pulled it together very quickly and remotely. Right. Um, Rosie's dad works in the music industry in Nashville. He said that obviously the, the lack of touring is going to decimate the economy there. Yeah. So based on touring and some degree tourism, but mostly really touring, the whole infrastructure of production of a massive tour is... Yeah. employs so many people and yeah. so yeah. he sort of said that'd be nice to do something to cheer people up and yeah. we sort of hashed out an idea and then we found a copywriter and we got someone to go and shoot it and then we got some money off the tourism board from nashville and some permissions to go inside some buildings and um dolly parton agreed to read the voiceover <laughs> so that was that was i know it was great i was like oh this came together well <laughs> Rosie's a very good, very, I had a couple of the bad creative ideas that probably got in. So anything terrible in it would be my fault. <laughs> but the great copywriting is, is um, a friend of ours from Nashville, who's like yeah. Nashville Copywriter of the Year last year. And okay. the guys that shot it are music, like uh, photographers and videographers. Yeah. Um, so we were trying to, you know, oh, at least get to, get some work to people yeah. that needed work as well, which was nice. And that it came together. So yeah, it was, that was yeah. cool. Although and then, I, yeah, the I suppose that's, it's just a shame that you couldn't, you know, cause that's the kind of, you know, once in a, once in a career type, uh, you know, Dolly Parton and everything. And yeah, I know. Yeah. And then it, <laughs> but you couldn't be there. <laughs> because No, exactly. We didn't, we yeah. didn't get to meet her, but she agreed yeah. to do it. And for which yeah. we're extremely grateful. And then she put it on her Facebook and her Facebook is, I don't go on the Facebook much anymore, but right. her Facebook is, is, she's got a lot of, she, she's a, an interestingly bipartisan figure. Yeah. She appeals, yeah. she appeals universally. And yeah. that is a rare thing nowadays in America. And so that was cool. Yeah. But yes, she's it was. Very, uh, she's very great. well preserved as well, you know, because yeah. she's kind of looked the same for about 40 years, hasn't she? <laughs> Yeah, she's a performer. She puts on a costume and that's yeah. kind of how her, you know, it, it, she's very, very aware of um, her uh, business. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it was good. So that was un unexpected, but we it, it also gave us a little bit of, uh, I guess, creative satisfaction and also just getting something done that was very much out of our normal mm. wheelhouse now, m very much, I suppose, in our wheelhouse before. But mm. also when you're a part of a big agency, as you know, you aren't doing all the bits and in this case we were doing all the bits so it's like yeah. it's a different experience of course yeah. um and that was fun and that sort of gave us a bit more um vim maybe yeah. and then we launched the school we launched the school of stolen genius which uh, yes. is still in in beta yeah. but we have a little community growing and okay. um 
it seems to be going pretty well. Yeah. Well, let's go. We'll we'll go into that in a bit of detail in a minute. But um, okay. But we've got to we've got to get your five uh, because this uh, yes. emerging sort of theme of this uh, of this program is sort of basically a rip-off of Desert Island Discs, you know, but... Right. <laughs> I feel very honoured. I've always, I've always wanted to, you know, yeah. be invited. Yeah. So, uh, I, I'm not... Uh, who's it that does it? It's Kirsty Young. I, think I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I, I can't I'm, remember. I'm yeah. out, out of touch with lots of things. But I guess right. Australia is basically a desert island, right? I think it will take. Yeah, I suppose it is, yeah. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, so... Uh, well, it's definitely... Uh, but I mean, don't want to go there, but that, that you know, I'm going to talk about uh, issues of the mind later on. You know, one of these. Yes, you know, absolutely. Yeah, it is um, definitely uh, on occasion feels like uh, being on the very edge of the world. Yeah, mm. down here, I get that slightly giddy feeling. Yeah. Anyway, but... I say, uh, Kirsty Young is Scottish and has quite a deep uh, voice as well. So, but. Uh, I think hopefully uh, she doesn't have a voice like mine. But Yours, us... yours is very very mellifluous, I'm sure, yeah. much nicer than, than hers. Yeah. <clears throat> okay, give us your first tune. Or should I say, okay, the first... uh, I'm, I'm going to sort of uh, preface it by saying, uh, uh, you know, where should I begin? Yeah. Right. You see, you see, you see uh, I'm going? <laughs> yeah, I, uh, 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 well, hang on. Um, let me think about this in terms of order. I, I gave them to you in order of you, but I think, what about we do uh, round yeah. here first? Okay, yeah? change them around. Yeah, sorry. No, no which one? Do you, want to do the, do you want to do it in the order we did it? That's fine. Let's do no, no, lighter no, by DJ. No, no, no. DJ no, well, you do them in the order that makes most sense. Uh, I'm just, okay. I don't think it's chronologically important. Let's do the one we, the way we did. Let's do, no. do lighter. Lighter is one of my favorite songs of all time. Yeah. I love that track for a lot of reasons. Obviously, I, I, or not obviously, <laughs> I like Drum and Bass and Jungle a lot. I yeah. still like it a lot from the mid 90s when uh, I, it was my thing, I suppose. Uh, and that tune particularly I adore. It, it's from around that time, it's very early. Um, and the, the, the piano, the sort of classical sounding piano that people yeah. often uh, false attribute to various classical uh, um, composers 
is the I, theme I, tune I, from the, the movie Love Story. That's what I thought, yeah. Where do I? Ah, right, okay. We, so, yeah, we, you've got to know the movie, which obviously I, I didn't until I had, became interested in samples for this track. But, uh, um, yeah. Yeah. No, I was <laughs> but that is, that's very funny. That's yeah, funny. When, that's you sent funny me, to me. when you sent me the list, you know, I went through them all just to check that I knew what everything. I didn't know that tune. I was like, is this for real? And then, obviously, then it kicks in. And I was like, all oh, right, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, it's brilliantly done, and it, and it kind of does the you know the things that I like about creativity in general are when you take something and make it something else, and you're like yeah. those two things should shouldn't go together, but somehow That's they kick ass. It's, yeah. it's 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 great. Yeah. How did you what what because the the sort of you know obviously, but I'm gonna have to be careful because aficionados will uh, will sort of mm -hmm. hammer me for this between the difference between jungle drum and bass ah yeah i mean it's uh, that's, that's more it's a, jazz it, kind of influenced kind of stuff but i mean well, they, yeah, yeah yeah rhythmically they share you know but then what was yeah. on the top can be quite different yeah okay so so you know the, essentially the break beats at a certain speed with a bass line is the defining characteristics that's why it, there's something about it that it's kind of uh, a different um kind of music tradition which i sort of didn't know then, but it's polyrhythms, right? The drums yeah. are an instrument rather than the beat. And yeah. polyrhythmic drumming is kind of an African musical style where the, the yeah. percussion is the driving force of music rather than the support act, yeah. which I like. And yeah. the whole jungle drum and bass thing is, is uh, tiresome, frankly. You, you remember dance music in the 90s yeah. Yeah. where ev everything endlessly fragmented into subgenres. So you could yeah. pretend you'd started a new one and yeah. get into mix mag or whatever. Yeah. Um, it got it, it got tiresome and, and like you know the idea a bit that jungle was the sort of more toasting raga influenced side yeah. of it and that it moved into a sort of yeah either jazzy or intellectual for some yeah. variants yeah. I, I just when I discovered it I guess and, and still it's the case the 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 speed of it really appeals to me it feels like an appropriate pace at which my I don't know heart picks brain works yeah. maybe um, but it was a later in life discovery for me. I didn't, okay. what, it was like I was late teenagers going into university because I was a guitar kid like, like yourself. Yeah. Um, not, not as talented as you clearly, but I, I used to play guitar. And so some of the other tracks on my listing are from my, my guitar worship yeah. uh, earlier teenage years. Yeah. It's funny, I used to, cause I mean, in late 80s through in 96, cause I, I was just like a club DJ. In, in Scotland right. as well, and that. But when, whenever we had, whenever we had a sort of uh, big name guest DJ at the club, and I got relegated to the warm up, um, mm -hmm. well, it didn't bother me because I could play slower tempo kind of stuff, you know. And occasionally, what you could do is slip in some like really heavy sort of dub, like early seventies dub reggae, mm -hmm. Nike Dread or something, because it it it. Uh, Although it seems like it's a really slow tempo, you know, like some of the sort of drum and bass stuff would, would just would match it perfectly, you know. Because, oh, yeah. Because it's, you know, the actually the sort of downbeat, like tempo is actually quite slow, but it gets, you've got the appearance of speed because of everything that goes in. in exactly, yeah. You can yeah. syncopate it and make it feel faster. And like, you yeah. know, drum and bass is like twice the speed of hip hop, basically, give or take, yeah. not quite. Yeah. But. But yeah, I mean, like dub is the original dance music, electronic dance music, right? Yeah. Dub was was a 
taking reggae and dance hall and messing with it electronically. And, and that was the sort of beginnings of dance. So it kind of makes sense. And mm -hmm. the tradition of syncopation that it comes from is very different to the European and American, yeah. very regular techno and house and disco, basically. House music mm -hmm. is disco music, right? It's the same yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, and it's glorious and it's wonderful, but it's yeah. very slow if you're a jungle head. Yeah. <laughs> but even the, um, you know, because the, even like rap music or, you know, hip hop, the, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, that's sort of derived from Jamaican sort of DJ yeah, culture. Uh, toasting, emceeing. Yeah, yeah, exa yeah. exactly. Yeah. And we just got a different version of it. We got the, the party toasting MC. We didn't get rapping until much later yeah. um, in, in the UK, at least, because our accents, we, you know, growing up in the UK, everybody sang in American accents. It's just <laughs> a thing that people do, right? Because yeah. like, that's where what music sounds like, I guess. And so you get yeah. kids like Ash who are, uh, couldn't have broader Irish accents um, yeah. singing, singing in very recognizable American grunge twang, yeah. you know, it's yeah. like, that's just what we did, I guess. Yeah. Anyway, so, so before that tune, we started to introduce the uh, Genius Steels University. Uh, yeah, yeah. The School yeah. of Stolen Genius. Uh, yeah, an school experimental. Of, yeah. yeah learning platform and community yeah so how's uh, how, how does how does that uh, just give us a bit of an overview of um as well. yes I think so, quite a few youngsters listen uh, okay wonderful yeah i mean you, you're welcome please so i guess one of the things that we had been focusing on in the last uh seven years is fewer more expensive projects right yeah. i want to do less work and charge more for it and part of that is speaking is a big part of our, but also the speaking gets us around, which subsidizes our life and travel and introduces us to people over the world, which can be useful. It's sort of, you know, yeah. um, but part of that meant that, you know, even smaller agencies to some degree or individuals inside agencies that were not being bestowed with anything like a training budget would reach out for assistance or, you know, oh, you're going to be yeah. in our city. Can you come and do a talk for the planning department? And I'm like, yeah, I'd love I'd love to, but there's a bunch of people who are paying me to be here to do that. And that's disrespectful to my clients. And I, you know, it's yeah. weird. There's, so we'll I, have a I've, I've encountered that as well but, before. They're sneaky, yeah. you know, because it's like, right, I, they know, you know, uh, I mean, I don't get about it as much as you, but I've had it a few times where you're in a particular place and then other people sneak mm -hmm. in and say, oh, can you come and do this? And it's like, well, but, but, someone but it else has paid they... my flights, and, you know. Well, that's okay as long as they're willing to pay a fee and then we'll subsidize the flight of costs across a number of different clients, which we yeah. happily do sometimes, unless they have a budget for that, in which case I think it's their business. But anyway, a, a, yeah, different clients are different. Events are designed around flying people in, so that's kind of their thing. Yeah. Agencies are not, so there's a different like payment system, I would think, or anyway, it's complex, but you get the idea. So. Like what we've been thinking about for a long time is that we like young people. I'm old and cynical. I would like to be constantly inspired like I used to be at the agency by young people who are not cynical like uh, I, well, I'm not always cynical, but you know. Yeah. Uh, and um, we, we enjoy that kind of stuff. And we were trying to work out also what's a scalable version, an accessible and scalable version, I guess, of the product that we sell both in speaking and uh, sort of bespoke inspiration or training or workshops. And so we, we sort of saw some other people doing some great stuff, Julian and Mark, and we thought, yeah, well, we've been thinking about this for a while. Now we have a lot of time at home. Let's just make sure, let's start it. We weren't ready, right? 
we're mm. never going to be ready, but we started and now it's iterating and that's much better, which is I'm sure what everybody who does minimum viable product would have told us, but you know what it's like when you are very comfortable traveling the world on someone else's expense, mostly it's easy to put things to the side. Mm. <laughs> um, um, and then, then something changes and, and yeah. So anyway, it's developing and yesterday, I think we had our first, so one thing we're doing is um, like, it's called, like a little mastermind like thing, which is sort of everybody who's in a certain tier of the school can do it or sign up for it, or you can buy it as a little package, but that's mostly just to make people serious about, you know, being on a weekly zoom and doing mm. the things we're going to try and do together. Mm. And we did it yesterday, we had about 20 people from disciplines and geographies, um, different kinds of jobs, not all agency, although there's a lot of agency people in our world, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was great. It was really nice. It was like a zoom where everybody's there to help the other people and mm. no one speaks over anybody else because you know, there's a, we're facilitating it and yeah. yeah it was it was inspiring even and i was like this is this is great so it seems good we, we yeah so far yeah because what we spoke about before so obviously the traveling's off which means that mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. the speaking and you know being consulting in with a client or an agency that's limited uh, at the moment. well no so mm-hmm. We're doing a big consulting project with an agency in Puerto Rico, uh, who are very nice at the moment. And we've Mm. just interviewed a large number of their clients and uh, staff and leadership via Zoom. And we presented Mm. some sort of just what we heard and some thoughts about what we might focus on to them yesterday. And they seem really happy. Mm. They would love for us to go there. And we had a conversation this morning about, uh, Rosie and I, about whether we should or um, when we should. And, And we're still working on some of that. Um, mm. stuff but it's not impossible I would say it's mm. not as fun or as easy as getting to go and live with them like it's nice being in an office being around people doing what they do because yeah. we get a, sen- a sense of things more a bit anyway yeah. but so there's different things I think that's that we've just had to you know the, the timing of this at the very beginning of this whole thing we did a little uh, webinar for walk and said probably you should be thinking about three timeframes right now, as you do some scenario plans, you should be thinking about the next, you know, three months, which is going to be just, you know, panic response to everything, the next six months, because that's the end of the summer and it's going to be set the same and probably the next 18 months before anything realistically seems like it's going to change. And, but even though we said that emotionally, we didn't necessarily assimilate it, you know, And so it's like, huh, we're probably not going to get to do the stuff at all next year, probably at all, that kind of thing. So, mm. yeah, now it's more about do, thinking. Do, do, you think, do you think that you think, you know, because you know, I, I mean, me personally, you know, I've kind of written off the rest of this year, you know, anything, anything that happens is a bonus, you know, and I'm just thinking about January. Yes. That's, uh, you know, that's when we sort of get going properly again. But you, I, think, but you think it's going so to So it depends again. what you mean. It depends what you mean. Uh, we, like I said, we had our cash flow flatlined for like six, seven months. But in the last couple of months, we started getting work again, which is really good, obviously, because money is helpful to live. Yeah. And because it makes you feel good to do something that you're vaguely good at that people want to pay you for. And it's keeps you busy, frankly, stops you, you know, so that's good too. And we've been getting like, so 
there is budgets. Budgets exist, right? When you work as, a, as we do, providing services to businesses, uh, or as any agency does, mm. there are budgets. And working out which budgets you are looking for is a good sales tactic. And, and some budgets have to get spent before certain periods of time. So, oh. for example, we've been, in, we've, been, we've been in long conversations with various clients, a brand, uh, uh, various people. Anyway, uh, over a long period of time, and they like, we'd like to do a thing, and then obviously this happens. And they're like, okay, we're not going to do the thing anymore. Like, we're like, the thing would probably be a big three-day, all their international marketers come together, we'll do some workshops kind of thing, or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. But those things aren't happening, but now we're replanning that to do some sort of stuff over time. We've got a couple of gigs that come in just to do sort of online training -y things. We did some stuff for the Facebook. We did some stuff for... Um, a couple of private like gigs for agencies and clients that are looking for a little bit of uh, something. Um, and so sometimes when you don't know what you're looking for, you end up finding us and asking us if we can do it. <laughs> and and mm. often we'll say yes, if we can. Um, so it's, it, I think for us, everything was completely frozen and we, man we, we manufactured a project out of nothing for the Dolly um, Parton yeah. thing. And we built this school platform product and tried to, well, we're still doing it, but yeah. that was, that was just us. We have, we have, but now the sort of budgets have been released. So we're starting to get some work in again, in terms of travel. I do not think travel will. So I think travel is already increasing. Um, and people are having different risk tolerances and profiles, but I yeah. think the very, the very last thing to come back will be massive international marketing conferences, maybe. Mm -hmm. I it could be the, the, the last thing that ever comes, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? It's like, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, like concerts people are already clamoring for, but, um, mm -hmm. so I don't see that part of our business. Mm -hmm. Let's say there, there are strategic headwinds for most of next year, at least I would say for that particular mm -hmm. aspect, which is really confusing for us because we don't live anywhere in particular. And mm -hmm. this presents a very unusual question well not an unusual question mm -hmm. it presents the question that people ask us every conversation we ever have that i've been avoiding for seven years which is where do you want to live and the answer mm -hmm. is nowhere in particular but uh, mm -hmm. so so now it's like well um how will it, how will we curtail our we don't, we don't know what's going to happen everything is completely uncertain there's lots of uncertainty but well, if we're going to spend a lot of time somewhere because we're still living semi-nomadically from hustling places that we can borrow or look after or, mm. or a share. Um, we're, and we're fine if we have plenty of friends and family that have space and, and it's been, you know, it's been lovely and we've been basking in generosity, but it, it's like all the downsides of nomad life, but none of the upsides, yeah. Yeah. not none of the upsides. We get to see people a little bit, but not really because we can't see people. We can, mm. you know, very, so, it, so it's, it, it leads to a decision that's like, well, we probably have to stay in America because we can't really go anywhere at the moment, probably for a while. Uh, so where and what? So that's a whole set of questions that most people don't have to think about, but we, we're thinking about, I suppose. Yeah. And plus, I guess, you know, there's the other sort of extra weirdness factor of just not being used to um, being in one place, you know? And very much not. I, yeah. I saw the seasons change somewhere and I was like, this is so weird. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Right, give us another give us another tune we're spacing them out too okay. much you know, we need, we need yeah to, yeah well edit, edit me out i talk all the, way too much um uh, well i mean the policy talk? here yeah i don't edit anything unless okay great. unless it's potentially sort of you know has legal uh, 
I'll sure. try and be careful on that front. Yeah, um, yeah okay. So another, the second track I think I picked, if I recall correctly, was uh, Round Here by the Counting Crows. About the front door like a ghost into a fog where no one notices the contrast of white on white. And in between the moon and you, angels get a better view of the crumbling difference between wrong and right. Well, I walk in the air between the rain, through myself and back again where I don't know. Maria says she's dying Through the door I hear her crying Why? I don't know Round here We always stand up straight Round here Something came from Nashville with a suitcase in her hand She says she'd like to meet a boy who looks like Elvis And she walks along the edge of where the ocean meets the land Just like she's walking on a wire in a circus She parks her car outside of my house and takes her clothes off Says she's close to understanding Jesus and she Understood. She has trouble acting normal when she's nervous Right here carving out our names Around here We all look the same Around Okay, so what's uh, to, so Can Crows? Mm -hmm. It's kind of weird. This and, and the next one that's coming up as well. I remember these bands from when uh, in the nineties, because so, I worked in a record shop uh, for a while, mm -hmm. and, and uh, I used to. And this was in my DJing time, so I was kind of only really interested in club music and techno. Right. But but we used to sell a lot of jazz and a lot of kind of indie rock as well. And Cat and Crows used to fly out, you know, they just had yeah. a massive fan base, you know, and I, and I never understood it, to be honest. <laughs> I, I, I could I appreciate that, yeah. Um, and then, but anyway, uh, when I, I got your list yeah. and I played it and I, and I, and I sort of remember the tune, I thought, no, I still don't, I still don't get it. So you <laughs> have to explain it to me. <laughs> yeah, I, absolutely. So I love Cat and Crows. I still love Cat and Crows, but I love them a lot. And I think, you know, your age and music intersect at certain moments, you know, very yeah. specific moments. Uh, early teenage life, trying to find out what, what an adult kind of is and have some thoughts and, and opinions that are, that are your own or at least some influences that aren't fed to you, right? Yeah. 
and then later you can discover raving and that's a different kind of music and that's also mm. a moment right it's like oh this is fun um but at the time yeah being a depressed teenage boy like uh with a guitar mm. the candy crows couldn't be more spot on it doesn't it speaks to, to my soul and and it has that kind of um you know americana fetish that some of us yeah. growing up growing up in the 80s had yeah. in the uk because their TV was so expensive looking and ours was so terrible looking. And you just yeah. sort of thought, maybe mm. this is like a, just a poor version of that country or something. I don't know, it's weird. But um, uh, so there was this kind of culture was American. And as I said, we, that was kind of part of it. The, yeah. And it was the, the alt country soft, the, yeah. the, the poet of Adam Duritz. Obviously he has sort of silly dreads like, like mine, not like mine, he has his own version, very good dreads, yeah. but you know, yeah. uh, but it's a certain kind of, you know, aesthetic, I suppose, there. I think, I think that was him, you know, for the video, <laughs> when they said, right, you know, we're going to shoot you sort of out in the open and I'd have said, right, makeup department, can you just get me some extensions for these dreads, you know, to sort <laughs> right, of right. look a bit more impressive, because they're just like, too short, don't they? <laughs> Yeah, but that was the thing, exactly. And, and, and he would get asked about that a lot. And, and, and also, he, don't forget, he dated, um, I, I forgot this, he dated Jennifer Aniston and Courtney Cox from Friends. And also, right. Friends was quite a big thing at the time, right? Yeah. Um, I, I've seen Cat and Crows a lot of times, probably more than any other band. Uh, and they, when they're great, they're amazing. They're, in the sense of like being a good jazz band that yeah. breaks down, breaks, they don't just come out and play their songs, they break them mm. down, they remix them into each other. They are, you know, very capable, I guess, improvisational, maybe, but not really, you know, just mm. sort of exploratory musicians, all of them, I think. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, tonally, tonally, the, those first couple of albums, the color, the sound, the feeling, that was what my 14, 15 probably felt yeah. like in some, in some aspects, for sure. Yeah. Well, but that's cool, but it's quite, I mean, I guess it's quite sophisticated for a 14, you know, because, uh... You know, I remember when I was 14, it was kind of like loud and fast. And that was, you know, those, that was the criteria, really. No. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's the moment in time, right? I turned yeah. 13 probably in 1991, which mm. was a incredible year for American guitar music. Mm -hmm. It's Nirvana's Nevermind, Pearl Jam's 10, yeah. uh, Blood Sugar Sex Magic by the Chili Peppers, and on yeah. and on. There's so many. I mean, it was a, and all these things are still like, you know, yeah. yeah. Anyway. I think, you know, it's funny because then the sort of UK sort of reaction to that was, was you know, Blur and Oasis and mm -hmm. uh, and all of that. But it's kind of, if if that sort of grungy, like, classic rock kind of revival thing hadn't happened in America, then the response from the UK might not have happened in, in such a way. So although there seems to be a sort of opposition between the sort of, you know, the British rock and, the, and the, you know, although there was a lot of British grungy type bands as well, you know, they kind of, they, it was a counterpoint to each other. So they, it, both things needed to happen for the other. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I think there's a, there's a cultural ecosystem between America and England in general. Yeah. And it's, it's weirdly fast now. Mm. So like East London wants to be Brooklyn in a weird way, not all of yeah. it, but in some parts of it, it just does. And you're like that. Anyway, when you, I moved to New York, that wasn't the case. And when yeah. I, and now it is so anyway yeah. but the music cultural echo has always been there you know famously yeah. hendrix went got big in the uk yeah. and then went that, back that to used to be the way didn't it like you know america yeah. export things to britain to sort of kind of get some credibility and then they would then they would accept it 
back once we'd endorsed it. Yeah, which is interesting. It's like, uh, you know, that, that's a big aspect of kind of, you know, in, uh, is it Bourdieu or like whatever, that America has this sense that England has high cultural capital, essentially, yeah. right? It's a, it's a, it's a fairly, fairly correct. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I, it's, they're both very big in, in places, but um, yeah. it's also like, you know, it's a history fetish to some degree. You don't, you, it's like there's just hundreds of years of culture, where, yeah. you know, which is they, they share that in some ways. It's like the Protestant church, right? Or, or being Christian with Jews. It's like the first yeah. bit is the bit we share and then it sort of breaks off into different. Yeah. We moved on to different yeah. directions. But. I, I think uh, I, although America is much better at branding, it's kind of cultural export. You know, it's, mm. um, well, it's because it's an imperialist culture. It's a cultural imperialist place, right? Yeah. It, I mean, it, it worked out pretty quickly. You sell blue jeans by selling Mickey Mouse and yeah. James Dean, right? I mean, yeah. ho Hollywood is an advertising engine for the economic cultural capital of, of America yeah. um, in a very specific way. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's yeah. yeah. Have you ever, have you ever read, um, well, there's, there's two books. Uh, uh, the first one, so it's, it's the title is different depending on what country you're in but the version i've got is called the rebel cell and it's by a guy called andrew potter and somebody heath heath and potter and they're, they're, I, I i'm aware of it i think yeah, i've read it but i'm aware of it yeah and there's another one called the authenticity hoax but in in the, the rebel cell i mean the basic premise is and um, and and once this penny dropped it just i was like aha of course you know? and so i stole big chunks of this um in uh, first book that I, well, not, I, you know, cited them, but I kind of built on their argument. But the, the basic mm. premise is that, uh, you know, there is no counterculture. And that, uh, and the, you know, what we think of as a counterculture is really just the engine of capitalism, you know, where basically, you know, things emerge on the fringes. And then there's a mm -hmm. kind of natural selection process, you know, things eventually, that, you know, that succeed get absorbed into the into the mainstream and so yeah you know and so the but the audience for counterculture once something becomes too popular then they go back out to the fringes looking for the, for the, the, the yeah overexposure is a problem for all kinds yeah. of brands but especially cultural brands i mean absolutely capitalism is very good at because it lacks any kind of values beyond kind of money essentially and the protection of property to some degree it's very good at co-opting and then commodifying any kind of dissent yeah. any dissent at all becomes you know no logo is a very successful book yeah. right <laughs> like it, it sold loads of copies and became a manual yeah. for guerrilla guerrilla um, advertisers for that for a while oh, it's like it's very good at abs absorbing that and saying yep but if you want to have some money and an easier life in this system which is basically a race we can buy your credibility off you for a bit, uh, make you famous, you know? It's like B Billy Billy the Kid in Young Guns too. you know? I can make you famous. <laughs> okay, tell you what, right, let's let's have another another quick tune and then and then we're gonna um, uh, get into some uh, some mind probing. So what's your... What's... Right. right. This is a good track for that, I think, because it's a bit of a head... Um, this song is Mayonnaise by the, the Smashing Pumpkins.
perhaps one of the so I love Smashing Pumpkins uh, and I love this too, tune as well because there's some when that sort of guitar break comes in about three quarters of the time, it's like it's like wow blam. it's incredible it's yeah. incredible it, it's, it reminds me of the drop in a jungle track of the same kind yeah. of impact right yeah. it kicks you in really hard in wherever you get kicked when you hear music that does yeah. that yeah. like it's I, I learned the guitar because of Siamese Dream. That album to me was indescribably beautiful because yeah. it, it, it's not simple. Mm. <laughs> it's extremely not simple. The guitar, it, everything, every key, every bit is just annoyingly not simple. Yeah. Like, except maybe Disarm, which is playable, and maybe Today a bit, right? But the yeah. rest of it is really hard. And yeah. that, I was like, and so I spent so much time trying to learn to play the beginning of Mayonnaise. Um, yeah. I doubt I can still do it, right? But yeah. I just, I was, and then, you know, you, you sort of learn about overdubbing and how there's yeah. 48 different guitar tracks on may on mayonnaise or something ridiculous like that. And yeah. it's, it's, that just feels like overkill at a certain point. And you realize yeah. Billy Corgan maybe is kind of crazy, but you know, amazing yeah. at the time, amazing. But yeah. well, you know, I remember that album because I mean, again, when I was in the record shop, but that was one that really crossed over to kind yeah. of just, you know, all kinds of kids loved it, you know, so no matter what other, type of music they were into that was you know if they were only going to have like one sort of you know mental angsty sort of rock album that was going to be that yeah. was going to be it yes you know? <laughs> yeah mental angst definitely was something that appealed to me greatly around that time but that one yeah. was i'm pretty sure the first time i heard about it i saw someone had written smashing pumpkins on their satchel or something like that genuinely <laughs> and i didn't know what it was but my brain indexed it and my brain was like that's probably yeah. a thing i should look into right yeah um and then I discovered it and I was like, yeah, this is glorious, just glorious. That's it, you know, it's power of a sort of, of a name, you know, I mean, you can just, you can almost tell if something's going to be good, just, well, not so much if it's going to be good, I, you know, because if I, on the odd occasion we're allowed out down here, if I wander down to the, uh, down to the town, you know, there's a lot of bars and everything that have bands playing, and I look at the, the poster, uh, mm. and, and it's like, uh, you know, all the bands that are playing that band. And they've all got really shite names. And you think, I'm not going to go and see uh, that. <laughs> I, it's like, and also whatever name that the band is, is currently holding when it gets famous is the one that sticks also. Yeah, so it's kind yeah. of, that's a, you've got to be careful. You don't want to give them an idea that you don't like because they might buy it sort of problem, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was reading the surprise, I don't, that's not that surprising me. I read the biography or memoir of Flea, the bass player from the Red Hot, Chili Peppers recently. Okay. Yeah. It was not what I expected it to be. It's mostly about his, his, his use before the band really takes off. Okay. And it's kind of a beat poet buildings roman, kind of like it's very coming of age, but it's written in this snap groovy kind of, it's just, it's very charming and mm. it's good, I think. And <clears throat> as a side point, him and Anthony Kiedis, who were friends running on ground on the streets doing all kinds of illegal things and substances from the ages of 12 onwards in LA, it's remarkable they're still alive. Just, rem I mean, Anthony Kiedis breaks his back at one point, jumping off a roof into an empty pool. Right. And these people just survive, but a lot of their friends didn't, right? They were doing yeah. some really messed up stuff. But the original name of the Chili Peppers was something like, oh, I don't know, Dr. Anthony and his magical emporium. It's, it's a very long and yeah. I'll look it up. The, yeah. so it, there, it, that was their name up until like the gig or so before they somehow became famous yeah. and um, it was like just very lucky they changed it to the equally silly but much yeah. easier. It's, um, it's one of those it's hard to put your finger on why something's wrong or why something's right but you just kind of you just sort of <laughs> okay well let's kind of, no. see if this is right this is right yeah. originally it was called 
Tony Flo and the Miraculously Majestic Masters of Mayhem. Yeah, well, that sounds like <laughs> the Muppets or something. Yeah, yeah <laughs> they were taking the piss a lot. I mean, yeah. yeah, but... yeah. I remember uh, uh, there was some uh, some guys I knew at school had this band, and for all all the way through, the band was called Bishop Grape. And I was like, you. you... <laughs> You've got to change that name. You never, never, and then they eventually changed it to something else. Was, I don't know what it was, but it was classic. It was oh, like, right. It was like the something, you know. And I was like, that's better. Right. You, you just yeah. want to be the, you know, whatever. Didn't didn't the Happy Mondays guy Sean Ryder do Black Grape for a while? Uh, he was yeah, Black Grape. Yeah, that yeah, that yeah. seemed to work. Yeah. That was good. Bishop that was good. Grape, Bishop Grape. Or, yeah. mm. <laughs> And, uh, when I was a kid, you know, we had a, a sort of, this was like post-punk sort of psychedelic uh, band. We were called the Hungry Freaks. Well, it was named, <laughs> named after a Frank Zappa tune. <laughs> oh, Zappa. Inspired yeah. a lot of, of experimental music. Yeah. I, I, I bought some Zappa records to um, pretend that I was cool, essentially. Yeah. And uh, because the, I was, because, you know, I did the thing where I bought like the most esoteric record yeah. because I thought that was excellent. I was like, I don't understand what's going on. Is this music? What's, what's happening? But then obviously I eventually grew up and went through some of his stuff and, and yeah. I am uh, a big fan of much of it. His tone yeah. and his uh, his attitude in general were yeah. very, yeah. He very was, appealing to me. Well, because he was right in the middle of like hippiedom LA, but he was almost the antithesis of, uh, of that. He kind of secretly hated them. The thing, yes. about, thing about music though, when it was records, right? I mean, Okay, you would, part of buying a record was to listen to it, right? The other part of it mm -hmm. was to carry it around, you know. Yep. <laughs> I so I, I I I for a brief period spun jungle and I had vinyl because it was I was at that that point of time too. Yeah. So I had a couple of crates of vinyl and I would go to the record store and listen yeah. to the new tracks at Black Market in Soho or the oh, one yeah. in oh I can't remember what Oxford was called. But anyway, um, so yeah, I mean, like vinyl was very very heavy indeed, extremely yeah. heavy. And uh, when people started going over to Goa to do raves, they realised that vinyl also warps in high temperature. <laughs> <laughs> oh, of course. Yeah. Well, there used to be, uh, uh, when I was about 15 or 16, first going out to pubs, you know, there used to be a pub in Aberdeen that was kind of, you know, for the kind of, you know, people that dressed in black, basically, you know, punky sort of people and everything. We walk about, but everyone had albums under their arm. It was a bit like when you were getting dressed. It was like, right, I'll put on that T-shirt, that jacket. Uh, and what shall I put under my arm? Uh, oh, you know, white, white, white heat. That'll do. And you would walk around. Wait, wait. So you'd carry it around? You, really? People would carry it around. Yeah. Okay. Uh, like all right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah. Why not? Yeah. It seemed like that anyway. <laughs> There's definitely. Yeah, I can. I can see it though. I can imagine you, you um, as a younger person. When you're lecking, I believe it's called, isn't it? Lecking in anthropology. Yeah, yeah, that's. that's when uh, you're when you're lecking, you're you're hyper aware of what your the symbols and signals that you're attempting to put out, aren't you? So. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. But of course, sometimes you get them. You know, I think you know, the Velvet Underground albums are not a, such a, a a cue for sort of mating. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, things is what is what we may think. You know? I mean, yeah. Sunday morning still gets me every time, but yes, yeah, it's, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. But in terms of, you know, attracting, uh, you know, women, it probably sounds more of a warning signal rather than... Uh... <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, but at a certain point, that's what you think is attractive. And so, I mean, you know, yeah. when you're young and you think you're, you know, you don't think about things like getting old that much, you, yeah. you, 
you want to be a bit destructive and dangerous and yeah. you like that's if you are if that appeals to you then that appeals yeah. to the people that are going to appeal to you as well and so yeah. but um but like really like off the wall by michael jackson that would have been a better uh, yes then, you know because then you might look cool but then it looks like you can dance as well you know which is uh, yeah. yeah but that's that's promises you can't <laughs> catch let's be honest right <laughs> i mean <laughs> That's why it's like raving to jungle because no one cares how you can dance and you can go off and do it on your own in a corner, yeah. which is what my preferred, my preferred, like, I'm like, this is, this is great for me. It's not, yeah, yeah. yeah. there's, everybody's here, but nobody is here. Yeah. And that's, that's great. You know, because it used to go to like drum and bass nights and it, basically it was just like a, the strobe was going for like eight hours. Yeah. It was never yeah. off, you know? But it was quite oh, good. It was great. Because if, if you couldn't dance, you can give a de pretty decent impression, you know, of just, you know, yeah. If you can just coordinate yourself with the strobe, then. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a it's a whole sensory experience. It was a whole sensory experience, and yeah. I used to write for a drum and bass magazine called Knowledge at one point, and oh, um, I, remember I, would that. Go, I would I would I would go to raves uh, as a as a journalist, not as a panther, and, yeah. and sort of go like at the different side of it, and, and it's like a, it's it was it was just interesting. All right. Yeah. Cool. Right. Anyway, speaking of uh, cognitive distortions. Uh, yeah, and the like. So, um, I'm sure how to sort of seg segue this in, but when we sort of mm -hmm. chatted before, we thought it might be interesting just to sort of um, talk a little bit in a sort of sensible way about mm -hmm. mental health. And, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and particularly in this in in this business, because it's something that um, there's always lots of press articles and you know, mm -hmm. and wellness programs and agencies and everything. But it strikes me that, that a lot of that is kind of window dressing. And... Yeah, I mean, sadly, a lot of these things are going to be because it's like you can't, it's very difficult to start an initiative that will change, you know, people's, people's latent built in uh, beliefs around mental health and the stigma associated mm -hmm. with it. And kind of like there's you can put mechanisms in place that stop you running people ragged i hope that's something people can do but it, it's hard it's really hard and you know you're a a, a male of a certain age like myself from a certain part of the world where it's famously not something we like to talk about at all in yeah. fact right yeah. it's very very much you don't talk about that stuff and and i don't know what it's like living in australia but i mean i did live there briefly in 06 but more long term, more literally. I mean, being in America, it's, it's such a different culture around that. Um, and seeing both sides is kind of it's kind of helps me a little bit to move myself out of my frame. But yeah, I think it is a real problem. I think people that are drawn to industries like advertising, I'm not saying they necessarily tend towards um, mental illness. That's on a case by case, of course, but they tend towards extreme personalities or they used to. Uh, and to certain kinds of behaviors that are often essentially self-medicating your way through very difficult working conditions, et cetera, et cetera, um, in, in terms of time and or whatever else it is, you know. So, I, yeah, it's difficult. And I have historically been very uncomfortable talking about depression and anxiety, but I definitely <laughs> suffer from them. And this year in particular, when I got sick and our business flatlined and we didn't know what the hell was going on, I had a very, very, very unpleasant few months. Yeah. Um, which was, uh, yeah, really, um, I, I was not functional, non, non able to do things. Um, yeah. and it's taken, I had to, I mean, like I had to make some big 
adjustments. Um, yeah, but it seems to have it seems to have bottomed out and picked back up, at least in my brain. And one of the weird things that we notice, Rosie and I, about our business is that it's you know project based and therefore clusters right occur naturally. That's how randomness often distributes itself. Yeah. But often those clusters will appear just as I start to feel better. Yeah. It's just, it's like, it's like being happier makes it more realistic for, and people can maybe tell because I broadcast it across my absence of social or not. I don't know. Maybe it's not that. Maybe the universe just knows now would be a good time to give me something to do. Mm. Um, I don't know. It just seems to happen like that a lot, but uh, we definitely uh, struggled and, you know, I have done a lot before. So the, here's a, because it's similar, uh, well, similar different for you. So I've you know, had on and off little sort of periods you know, over the years. But then I think last year, or whenever it was, a year and a half ago, mm -hmm. when, I, when I got the boot from UN, mm -hmm. um, that was probably the one of the, the worst ones that I've had. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I spent a few months just feeling sorry for myself, really. And, uh, yeah. Kind of not able to, to do very much. But then I thought, hang on a minute. You know, you know, because you know, part of my sort of brand or my shtick is, you know, taking, you know, learnings from, you know, psychology and behavioral science and applying that mm -hmm. to concept. I think I said, well, why don't I just actually use what I know to analyze uh, mm -hmm. what, what's going on? And I thought, right, from an evolutionary standpoint, I thought if if depression or anxiety, if it if it still exists, right? And so mm -hmm. so it's been, you know, whatever, the element of the genome that contains the little formula that produces that. That has mm -hmm. been passed down from generation to generation to generation and it's still here. So there must be some adaptive value. Yeah, or or it or it's carrying along with other things that are more useful, but yes. Yeah. And so I thought, well, what, you know, what that might that be? So I did a bit of sort of poking about, you know, and then there was a, I came across this, this, uh, so this um, sort of analysis really, it came from that, from, you know, from other non-human uh, primates. And stuff, but, this mm -hmm. is, but, but what tends to happen because, uh, you know, primate societies, particularly humans, because they're, that, you know, there is a hierarchy, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in any, you know, within any structure of society, you know, depression mm -hmm. um, is a sort of um, actually a defense mechanism, right? So mm -hmm. when you lose some status or some rank or, you know, social status, mm -hmm. uh, this actually kicks in as a defense mechanism, which is telling you it's time to walk away from this situation, you know, to avoid doing yourself further harm. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, well, that's actually, that seemed to sort of, you know, that, that helped uh, me make sense of it. And then, and then it's, yeah. you know, <clears throat> I, I, I think I understand that entirely. I think it's in a way it's the Peter principle but your brain sort of telling you you've done something you shouldn't be doing you know yeah. I definitely think uh I began to get anxiety noticeably for the first time whilst working in New York it was definitely some aspect of that 
particular kind of working culture that exists there and, and almost nowhere else, although it's spreading. Mm. Um, that, that was extremely unhealthy for me for lots of different reasons, both in terms what, of the, what, what aspects of there's lots of things, right? But the, 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 the nature of employment in America is that you're employed at will. So there's, you can be let go without any cause at will with, right. no, with no semblance, right? So everyone is kind of insecure in their job. Also, the scale of America is unbelievably hard to get your head around if you've not worked there. Right. Because you sort of think, oh, it's a few times bigger than England. No, it's not. It's like a, a, a square. It's like a, it's, you know, England squared kind of. It's so right. much bigger that the scale of business means that, you know, my agency in New York, one of them was two and a half thousand people across, right. you know, the, the media agency and the creative agency and maybe a digital bit or something. But anyway, that, that's a big entity, right? So large entities where vast amounts of money are being spent hmm. and can be made are particularly political situations and the people who tend to be most comfortable often not always at the top of some of these um, things tend to be the ones who are best at surviving in those situations uh, of politics yeah. and stuff and, and that tends to breed out people with a great deal of empathy not always again but it, it tends to i would say yeah. um, and also there's a whole kind of contest of loyalty which goes on so you know, one agency I was looking at had board meetings on Sundays because we were too busy in the week with other meetings. That, that's an indication of the kind yeah. of thing yeah. that they do. And I think they do on purpose. Yeah. I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> it wasn't good for me. Yeah. But definitely when I left my extremely high status, very large titled set of jobs in New York, yes, I had a similar realization at a similar period of, of you know, spiraling where I'm like, I'm free. I can do whatever I want. What's the point now? You know, yeah. I'll just get drunk all the time. Great. And then we started doing stuff again because people started reaching out to us and saying, do you want to come and do this? And we were like, oh, okay. And then Genius Deals came about because of that, because mm -hmm. people, kept, people kept emailing us and they still haven't stopped. They did a bit for this year, but it's mm -hmm. back. So that's nice. Um, but um, yeah, the status thing, the rank thing, the, it's like we, we're, all, and we're all playing, you know, it's infinite status games, right? We're, we're to a yeah. point where primates, we cannot not be doing that. We sniff each other out as soon as we meet. If you're English, your accent communicates a great deal about you, whether or not it, appropriately or not, it does. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> and that's just the thing. And it doesn't change, right? It's, it's the, the, how we sort of, but, but part of it is social and constructed. And part of it is, is internal, how you feel. And it, you know, if, you, if you internalize that your status has dropped, you're, you're in physical danger in sociological terms, right? You know social angst is is fatal if you live in tribes and so on like that right yeah. so because you force out the tribe you die so being embarrassed is like a legacy emotion of social um exclusion yeah. which could be fatal right that kind of vibe so definitely that happens and i i think any kind of, it's also very contextual like it, there's a it, there's you've got to look after yourself and support yourself and feed your family that's one aspect of what work has to do but if you spend your whole life working, like a lot of us do in agencies, especially in places like New York and, and other places that, that ape that working culture, it has to be more than that, right? So then it's kind of a competition and it's sort of a race, kind of, I guess. And it's like, who can get to the top and, and hold on for long enough? So that's kind of the game, I suppose. And that game is not very healthy in lots of ways because you get to the top and then you're like, well, what's that? What, ah, it doesn't suit me. Oh no, what happened? 
Um, and, and then <laughs> you're sort of forced through context shifting or through your body or brain telling you this is not going well for you to do something different. And that's usually, it's usually interpreted as something bad, right? You go, oh no, this is now, I used to have a big important thing and now I'm not big and important and that makes you feel bad, right? And often um, those things are what, you know, end up teaching us or maybe more shifting the context in which we make status decisions. So the value systems that we operate within are dependent, like status, you know, being a super senior banker is a very high status job to certain kinds of people mm. and a very low status job to certain kinds of people. Mm-hmm. And you are able to sort of code switch and shift frame between these different value systems, particularly if you're a sort of hippie leaning liberal with dreadlocks like myself who worked pretty much the top end of the advertising business in the biggest market in the world, right? Where you're sort of in between different worlds all the time anyway, you know, you're like, mm-hmm. oh, I'm I'm not sure. Maybe this is so. You're sort of thinking about different, and I was thinking about that because you mentioned the rank theory, and it makes some sense to me. Mm. But I have been reading uh, some stuff, and also um, I think this thing I saw. I I found this satisfying. This 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 add-on to that, right? Mm -hmm. Um, In I read it in the Atlantic article about peaking too early, which I think a lot of us maybe read. Did you see that? Not peaking too early. Your work peak is much sooner than you think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's an article called that. It's it's actually it's good, and it talks about a Hindu uh, approach to life and life stages, mm-hmm. um, and sort of this is obviously before Buddhism. Um, and we go to India quite a lot. We have been very lucky to be invited to speak in India, and we travel mm-hmm. there two or three months of the year for at least the last two or three years, maybe more. We very 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 fond of it, and we spend uh, um, we like it there a lot. And in Hinduism, there's uh, like four stages that your life it's supposed to go through, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I think they call them ashramas, kind of like the word ashram, but it's not that, anyway, ashramas. Mm-hmm. Anyway, there's four stages. The first stage is you're a kid and you don't know anything. And so you need to be looked after and learn stuff. Brilliant, mm-hmm. great. The second stage is you're a grown up, and it's the time to accumulate wealth, become good at something, start a family. Mm-hmm. That's stage two. And what they say is if you get caught up on the whole status wheel of money and titles and things it's because you got stuck in stage two and you've got two more Mm -hmm. stages to go to have a a healthy life whatever it is right Mm -hmm. and stage three which is supposed to start around 50 for most people but it's obviously very variable isn't when you stop working it's when you stop caring about that stuff or it's when you begin to, to wean yourself off caring about that stuff and begin to i think that that phase is called something but it sort of means when you go off into the forest and do your meditating, it's sort of where the Buddha, you know, and chipped off to, to do that thing. It's that phase where you go and do that. And it's that phase of your life. And, and you're still going to be working realistically. Most of us will have to be working forever, but even in India, you'll still be working at 50. Um, but you begin to think differently about the, your life goals because the fourth stage is enjoying life basically in an enlightened way mm. and that's what they call they call that sannyasin or sannyasa and it basically means you've done all the meditating you've got the money you've made the family you've taken care of society and the needs of your family and you've accumulated enough wealth hopefully yeah. and now you've done all, you've done the thinking and you've been to the forest and you've meditated and you found that life isn't about that stuff 
which it can't be because you're getting older. So yeah. you've got to prepare yourself. You're, you're preparing yourself, you're training yourself to have a life which is different because it inevitably has to be, mm. unless you want to be like Sumner Redstone, nominally running CBS and Viacom from your wheelchair at Nike 3, even though you can only say three words through an iPad. Mm. That doesn't sound like a healthy dotage mm. to me. Mm. That feels like a very sad thing where you're trapped in this stage mm. two. Because stage four is accepting all the things you have to accept about what is in, in the world and enjoying life in its smallest mm. way. Like, and that's sort of where Taoism gets to, Buddhism gets to, Hinduism gets to, they all get to this point, basically, which is like, all this stuff is important for a bit. Mm. And then it can't keep being important or it'll poison you. Mm. Um, and, and in India, they, they have um, sadhus, right? So if you go to like Hampi or the religious cities and go look at the temples, there are the dudes who wander around in little uh, lungis or nappies kind of, and they paint their face sometimes and they're orange sometimes and they beg and they smoke hash by the Ganges to venerate Shiva, right? Mm. And most of the, uh, the idea is that they've given up their families and their jobs, they've passed on their jobs, their, their craft to their children, and they don't want to be a burden on them, so they go and live in nature as beggars so they can be in tune with just the enlightenment and the universe and you know, it, it's a, it's mm. both a, it's both a, a required sociological commercial thing that they've sort of evolved to mm. some degree, but also it's like the point is, this is the bit where you're going to be spending most, most of the time just chilling and thinking anyway, because you're going to be pretty old. And mm. um, so I kind of think that that to me was very comforting as a thought, right? Like, mm. it things should be different, and and I, I have been very lucky in my career that. I do lots of different things and, and they've mostly worked out okay. That's fine, knock on wood. Mm. <laughs> and mm. and I, it's just been, it's just, they've been quite different. And the thing I was thinking about with this, this pandemic thing is that like, I kind of, I love the idea and I say people should try different kinds of jobs and live in different countries and do things because it seems like it makes you better at mm. being nice because you have more empathy and better at being creative because you have more references and more patterns to compare, et cetera, et cetera, right? But mm. I realized when my future was taken away from me, the future where I was very comfortable traveling and speaking, um, and I was like, I, that's what, I, I like doing that. I want to keep doing that. Oh, no, I can't. That's not fair. That's not fair. Mm. But then it's just like, no, it's just time to do something else now, I think. Mm. And like, okay, well, well, okay. Well, that's, then I was like, okay, well, let's think about what that could be. And that's okay again. Mm. I think that's, that was helpful to me anyway mm. it's about yeah i mean it's about being adaptive you know because yes you know what what, what the last sort of six or eight months of all this has, has shown us is you know if we didn't or we would if we'd forgotten you know the you just the future is completely unpredictable anything yeah. can, can happen and uh, good and bad good and bad it's like exactly. that's the yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I love that. I've been reading the Tao of Pooh recently. Okay. I found this very, very, comfort, <laughs> very, very comforting and very helpful. Yeah. I feel like I read it as a student, so 20 years ago. Yeah. It's now got a sequel. It's a bit more didactic called The Tao of Piglet. Um, but they talk about this, like non-attachment to things being good and things being bad. It's like, yeah. well, either way, that's what it is. Yeah. Yeah. So getting angry about the universe not conforming to what you decided in your head it should do is only ever going to make you sad. Like, mm. 
the only way to get past that is to accept the universe is what it's doing and then move from that observe mm -hmm. it as it is so yeah it's great so i was talking mm. about the ooda loop you know the ooda loop it's the military strategist called john boyd's strategic planning diagram which is exactly like all planning diagrams it's, okay. but it's called it's but it's called ooda and it stands for observe orient decide act okay. and it's uh, it's designed to be a faster decision process in the battlefield and that you win battles which we've now tried to turn into a strategy tool and it sort of works yeah. because it has a couple of elements in it that are ignored and other ones that i like and therefore we, yeah. we talk about it a bit but in towers and there's one too it's called observe deduce and act and yeah. it says all all unhappiness is caused by being guided by illusions by things you wish had happened that didn't things that you want to happen or things that are frightened will happen that haven't yet yeah. And all of these things are fiction. Then none of them yeah. are real. And so <laughs> you're never going to be happy if you invest too much. That, that aspect is quite like Buddhist thought. Yeah. Yeah. But, but they're like, it's not suffering. It's not suffering at all. In fact, it's great. Yeah. Everything is great. You just have to accept it the way it is. Otherwise, you know, even when it's bad, it could be good. And when it's good, it almost certainly is bad. That's one of the cool things about Taoist stuff. They say gifts are almost certainly a burden. Because yeah. yeah. <laughs> if you're given strength or beauty you take it for granted and you don't develop around it and you know whereas if you're given challenges you rise to them etc etc yeah i think you know i mean and i just think about our sort of you know business I mean, the other thing i thought is well what is my business right because i have mm. i have certain abilities and things that i can do and so far you know i've been applying them to advertising mm -hmm. and communications, but but the mm -hmm. potential application for these is all is in loads of different areas, you know. And so, yeah, you know, if even if this if this industry is kind of you know hit the skids, and you know, is it is it going to come back or what, what's it going? Like, you know, I could I can take my sort of little toolbox and and go mm -hmm. and apply, apply it, and you know, which is what I have been doing. You know, is doing things unreal. Yeah. To, to advertising, you know, but everything, most endeavor on this planet involves humans, you know, so it's kind of, yeah. a, <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and it's true, but most of them do, which is great. And yeah. uh, not, not engineering so much, but they have users, but not yeah. always. But anyway, yes, they do. And, but also um, thinking about something a bit before you do it yeah. and trying to find out some stuff about the thing you're thinking about before you do it. Yeah. in order to help you inform the decision is yeah. rarely a really bad idea or yeah. an approach to, to problems, right? Yeah. It's not, it's like, well, that seems sensible. Why wouldn't you do that? So yeah. whatever strategy is, and it's like big or small or grand or tweaking forms, it's it, just at a basic level, somebody who's willing to do a bit, spend a bit of time and, yeah. and find, find out some things and then maybe yeah. make some inferences from those things in a sort of interesting way that could be directional to other people that wanted to do stuff. Yeah. That, that sounds helpful to me. Um, yeah. And then, to and then design is. some experiments to, to either yeah, prove, yeah. prove your hypothesis. You know, it's like, oh, hang, exactly. on a I'm a, I mean, hang on a minute, I'm a scientist. You know? <laughs> yes, like yeah. that's so. So um, one of the things is like, you know, at every presentation that or workshop about insights, I redefine the word insight just for my own amusement, essentially, mm. because it's, it, I'm at that stage of dealing with the, the word. Yeah. The word itself is so, is so annoying that not, 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 not the word's fault, the word is not at fault, right? But anything mm. that we use and dissect and use and dissect gets... Anyway, you know what happens. Semantic depletion yeah. is inevitable and it becomes yeah. a universal signifier, which means anything and therefore nothing. 
Yeah. But one useful way I think of thinking about it is a predictive hypothesis. Yeah. If this is true, then you can make more effective ads. Yeah. And, and, and if only you know it because you wrote it, then you can make more effective ads in a competitively differentiated way that gives you an advantage against your competitors. Exactly. That seems like yeah. a, that's useful, right? Yeah. That seems useful. <laughs> I, just at a sort of base level, what that, yeah. that, that's like, I think that cameras are a bit like alcohol in that they, a Polaroid camera is a bit like alcohol, in the bit, in the, it sort of lubricates social experiences that are a bit awkward and gets you to be able to touch, um, give people hugs and make silly faces and stuff, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, and so that's, we'll call that an insight and we'll make ads that say Polaroid for social lubricant and yeah, parties and, and BBH will get loads of awards. It, it seems like a, yeah, it's a hypothesis, right? Yeah, yeah. That's it. But I mean, the t you know, I guess then the proof of the pudding is if it, um, if if it works. If it works, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, right. that's, that's always a tricky bit, though, isn't it? Okay. Like, what, what does work mean and how do, how do yeah, well, you know, yeah. all, all the, there's complexity in that element. But. Okay, tell you what, let's, let's have another tune and then I'm going to ask for your point of view on, on, on something else and then we'll try. Okay. To... The song uh, of my last summer, maybe? Uh, uh, Bury a Friend by Billie Eilish. Billie. What do you want from me? Why don't you run from me? What are you wondering? What do you know? Why aren't you scared of me? Why do you care for me? When we all fall asleep, where do we go? Come here. Say it, spit it out. What is it exactly? Your pain is the amount cleaning you out. Am I satisfactory? Today I'm thinking about things that are deadly the way i'm drinking you down like i want to drown like i want to end me step on the glass staple your tongue uh, bury a friend try to wake up uh, cannibal class killing the sun uh, bury a friend i want to end me expected me to make you my art and make you a star and get you connected i'll meet you in the park i'll be calm and collected but we cool. right from the she um so, always yeah. reminds me it's, it's a bit bjork ish i've always thought her voice yeah well, i'm just, her, so, I'm just her kind of her kind of aura you know of kind of sort of slightly mystical pixie-ish kind mm -hmm. of uh thing although a little, I, I think uh, Bjork is sometimes a bit more optimistic there's a sort of dark yeah. <laughs> she, she's dark but she's also very funny but she's also very dark so I I, yeah. I think Billie Eilish is amazing I think what her and her brother do is genuinely brilliant and remarkable and produced still in their bedroom which mm. is I mean it, it, the, the first album definitely was I don't know if it still is but anyway but I sort of encountered Billie Eilish like over the course of that year we were in 
Porto Alegre in Brazil doing a gig for some plenary conference, APG type thing in South America. And they were really nice, extremely nice people. And they invited us to their home for dinner, which happens much less often. Uh, in fact, it almost never happens when we have gigs. People normally want to take us out for, like, for dinners on, on yeah. um, you know, on accounts and stuff, which is great too, but it just, it was just a thing I noticed. Anyway, and so we went to someone's house or, or apartment for dinner and it was lovely. And they had a little seven-year-old daughter or eight-year-old daughter, maybe, I don't know, 10-year-old, I don't know, whatever, some child. And so I asked her, what music are you listening to? And she said this name, Billie Eilish, it meant nothing to me. And then a few months later, it came up again with it. We asked somebody else's kid what they were listening to. And it was like, that sounds familiar. I wonder what that was. And then by the summer I'd got, um, my head into it and I didn't listen to anything else for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. Mm. It's definitely, yeah, it's definitely one of those, um, you know, because it is a sort of teen, you know, uh, phenomenon, you know, you know unless you, mm -hmm. it's one that you, you know, because there's a few different uh, uh, things, because my, my boy is nearly 12, so he's just start, mm -hmm. he's starting to get his own, you know, after being force fed, you know, stuff by right. me. He's now <laughs> yeah. starting to, to, to get his own point of view, you know, but it's, it's quite good because cause I think I've, He's genetically inherited, you know, good taste, but so now he's finding the cool stuff that you know I would never, I didn't, would never hear. Uh, mm -hmm. so yeah, that's great. They become cultural scouts. But yeah, <laughs> I used to, I used to do that in agencies. I would find like the youngest person, you know, in the agency that looked like, you know, looked like they knew a little bit about what was going on, and I would appoint yeah. them to be cultural ambassador to the agency. Yeah. Like yeah, every it's second, so valuable. Every second Monday, I want you to come in and tell us all what's what's been going on. You know what what's the latest sneakers. You know what are people listening to yeah. and, and all that kind of stuff. Because but now but now the, the so to your point previously about wait a second what was that? Hang on. Oh yeah, countercultures because like one of the theses that I read somewhere recently about this, there's been no new genres of music of note according to various people like Jaron Lanier for a while. Yeah. But maybe that has, and we. But like, one of the theses around what's happening is that because media is so voracious and so um, insatiable, any glimmer of a new thing gets pounced upon by the culture press immediately, yeah. and then and then because the the membrane between, you know, the I guess whatever the style magazines and trend magazines that are now. I should probably know, but anyway, um, it, they, it gets from one part of culture, like it's like in a digital sense, it gets from Reddit to Twitter to, or from TikTok to Reddit, or from Reddit to TikTok to Twitter to Facebook, and it does it in like a week. So yeah. the, the thing that was cool, your parents know about two weeks later, which is lame, but mm. now it's not cool anymore. So it, it, does, it never gets time to grow into something which is defined enough to survive, you know? Yeah. It, it, it collapses in on itself because everyone's like, oh, it's rowing. I don't know if that's yeah. true or not. But, but um, I, I wonder, you know, because you know, I guess, you know, because pop music and, and things, that's, you know, we come from a generation or a, a sort of sequence of generations for whom, you know, that was culturally significant. But I, but I wonder mm -hmm. now if, you know, if the, if, if, you know, it's more like video games and everything. I think is more. It's like the pop music. Uh, I would I, so y y yes. I just did a gig for a video game company, like an inspiration thing. So I did a little bit of research for um, 
uh, on the gaming. Yeah, I mean, the game industry is much, much bigger than film and music. That's true. Mm. But it's highly, mm. highly segmented, I would say. Mm. Like, it's, there's so many kinds of gamers and so many, um, I don't know, but... All the kids, I mean, definitely, well, again, it's just sort of, you know... Fortnite. Small sample size. Well, not Fortnite, it's, uh, what's the... Uh, and Overwatch, that's the one that they all... Yeah, yeah, that's big, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think the social gaming thing is definitely a generation younger than me. I don't play that way at all. Yeah. I like I like video games a lot. I grew up with the Nintendos and all that stuff yeah. at the time. And yeah. now I play to be on my own almost, to be in a immersive experience that yeah. is n not here, kind of, I guess. Yeah. I, I, I don't um, play it at I, all. I just go in yeah. and gra grab the Xbox controller if I want to give them a laugh, you know, because it's like, oh, here's a right, right. duffer that can't do anything, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Just uh, pra practice on the side and, and get yeah. really good at one game. And, and yeah. I mean, yeah. I love I love games. I think they're an incredible medium for lots of different reasons, but I don't think they work the same. So, like, pop music is because there was it was scarce, kind of right. Like a lot mm. of stuff when it was when things were scarce, mm. they. The, the charts meant something, Top of the Pops meant something. I don't know what it meant, but it meant that I knew about it. And I always mm. knew about it. I, I knew what was in the charts and now I do not. And also the charts don't really mean what they used to mean anymore. They mean lots of different things, you know? So it's a, it's a yeah, I don't know. But also, but we were, we were kids, right? Just, I, I was the generation that got the internet at about 14 maybe. Right. But before that, songs from cool people in different times and places were like clues about being an adult. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they were like, set, these references are definitely sex or drugs because all songs are referring to either sex or drugs. I yeah. wonder which one it is. Yeah. I wonder which words mean what. I wonder if this is a sex word or a drugs word. Yeah. And like... <laughs> yeah, the secret, secret world of... Uh, yeah, yeah. that was the thing, you know, because you would read all kinds of meanings into things that weren't even there. Yeah. Other, other interesting and, and, thing. And, 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 yeah. No, I was going to say other thing about uh, just you know with kids and, and music that is the kind of flattening of time. You know where because mm -hmm. you know for my boy like Elvis Presley, and then you know that's one thing he likes, and then the Ramones, and then the Hut or whatever. You know, have you ever seen them? Sort of Mongolian folk metal. Yeah. I don't think so, but it sounds yeah. great. The Hut. Uh, okay. No, the Hut. H U. It's called the hut. Oh, okay. Yeah, you know, so check like, them out. They're... Mental. They do like it's like uh, throat singing over heavy metal played on traditional Mongolian folk instruments. It's, uh, it's, uh, but, um, that, but, but, anyway, but that's the thing. But it's not a stretch for him, you know, to right. You know, to kind of uh, you know from from, well, from that to, to Elvis. And then I caught him the other day listening to Vera Lynn. You know, like we'll meet again. Like, yeah, it's like, oh, it's I mean, I love the, I love, the, I love the idea. I mean, I remember writing it as something insight-like and annoying from an article, probably around 0506 about youth culture, saying there are no tribes anymore, yeah. based on some <clears throat> sort of historical memory of mods and rockers that was never was way before I was born, right? Yeah. Or, or maybe goths and and uh, uh, rock kids and gatecrasher kids and jungle kids hated mm -hmm. each other for a while, but not not in, anyway. But like. I, the, the the idea of the flatness and the infinite like obviously discoverability becomes a challenge but it yeah. made sense so i left university in 1999 and i spent a brief period as a management consultant i think and either before that and after or after that i wanted to work in the music industry so <laughs> it was a really weird time because no one knew anything about the internet and everyone was frightened about it because of napster so i this is totally true i interviewed to be head of internet strategy 
Universal Music directly out of university with no job experience or right. one year of job experience, right? Which was crazy on the premise that I liked the internet, had been using it for a long time and the people who worked there did not. <laughs> and I, di I didn't get it, right? But I thought the second time I'm gonna nail it. Some other, some other kid from my university got it and he ended up not liking it. It was fine, doesn't it? Chris, I think his name was. Anyway, so uh, I went to East West Records that was owned by Warner and I got to meet Oh, the, the, I got to interview the managing director who was a bit of a player at the time. I can't yeah. remember his name, Mark. Anyway, whatever. And I thought I'd do some research. Oh, that's right. I had been a consultant. So I did some consulting on it. So I looked up some McKinsey reports about the future of the music industry and shamelessly plagiarized them. Yeah. And the McKinsey report I plagiarized was called The Jukebox in the Sky about what would inevitably happen and what the economic impact would be on the business of selling plastic discs when digital things got to a place where they were very frictionless and infinitely available and blah 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 and mm. so i presented a little powerpoint to this guy about how the, his business is about to collapse essentially <laughs> <laughs> as, a, as a good as a good consultant of course would right because that's what yeah. you've got to do and then say how you fix it for money right yeah. but um but but he walked out <laughs> uh, i was gonna say it. i'm like he, he walked out he was very angry, apparently. Well, not angry, just he seemed like I'm done, I've had enough of this. And I'm like, but it, I'm pretty sure this is true. I mean, like, it's not going to happen right now, but like, you can't see how this not, Spotify will happen at some point. This is going to happen. You just, admittedly, it was 20 years early or so, because <laughs> 15, because yeah. that was the problem I always had as a consultant, right? As a consultant, yeah. we were selling 3G as, we were selling WAP as the internet in your hand, and then we were selling, then I left consulting and went to advertising and launched 3G for Orange, selling the internet in your hand. And at a certain point, I began to realize that some of these projections and curves were optimistic, let's yeah. say. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh dear, good times. But yeah, the jukebox in the sky was always a really catchy idea. And now we have that. Yeah. It's the, it's the, it's the old thing about sometimes being, I, I can't remember who said this, it's like being early can look like being wrong. Yes, yeah. uh, exactly. Someone yeah. said that to me. Being early is basically the same thing as being wrong. Yeah. Um, and I, I think it's true. I think it's yeah. entirely true. Um, uh, in commercial terms, it's not like being wrong um, in being wrong. It's like, it's wrong commercially because you'll put money into a business that won't succeed because it's 1999 yeah. and pets.com pets isn't viable. But now Chewy.com is a huge business, so it's yeah. the same thing. Yeah. So it's yes, timing is everything in business, of course, yeah. of course, and probably in life too. But that's harder to manufacture. Yeah. Well, speaking of timing, um, yes, I'm going to come I'm to gonna, the end. We'll come to the end because I've got some domestic duties to perform. So um, perfect. I will uh, let you go to it. So the uh, final song then. Yeah. The so play, play us out. Play us out. Yes. Uh, the final song uh, is very special to me. Um, it's called Doses and Mimosas by Cherub. It was a sort of anthem of several summers, a few summers ago, where we, uh, uh, I guess, had found a new group of friends that wanted to take us to Coachella and various parties, and it was all very, very fun. Um, and it's just a very uh, silly and uh, joyous uh, party song. All right, good. So we're, we're going to finish off with uh, uh, something on an upward sort of... Uh, yes, trajectory. cheerful, positive, optimistic, yeah. Uh, yeah. That, that kind of thing. Okay. Don't get me started, love. 
Thanks for coming on. Nice to chat Thanks again. Thanks for having me, mate. As, as ever. Always a pleasure. Yeah, yeah. and uh, yeah, um, all the best with, uh, with the various activities and um, and once. Thank you, and and you as well. Those of us out here on our own yeah. in the independent independent micro agency business. That's uh, it, yeah. yeah it's, now, it's, DIY. It's, it's, that's the that's the ethos. Yeah. Great, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, there's like everything has its trade-offs, right? Costs and benefits, isn't it? But I mean, there are obviously logistic elements, but owning my own time is uh, it's such a good feeling. Yeah. It's such a good feeling. Anyway. Okay, brilliant. Right. Thank you very much indeed. My pleasure. It was really nice talking to you. Yeah. Yeah, I've not been I've not been doing a lot of